listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you six new episodes. In late 2022, Tim Sobers, who leads our workforce development team, hosted a six-month skill development series for peer recovery support specialists. The training series provided recurring opportunities for peer recovery support specialists from across the country to build foundational skills that are necessary for effective peer support service provision. The series was so well attended and in demand that we also offered it in early 2023. For this podcast series, Tim sits down to have a conversation with each facilitator. They have a deeper and richer discussion with them about their presentation and what it means for the field. In the second episode of the series, Tim spoke with Zay Okaranta about supporting people navigating crisis. Zay is the peer services manager for Solstice House, a peer-run respite and warm line operated by Sora Case Management, a small nonprofit organization in Madison, Wisconsin. Zay is passionate about peer support in Wisconsin and views peer support work as a fundamentally restorative practice. She believes peer work has the power to reduce and prevent systemic harm, support marginalized communities in a more complete way, and bring radical acceptance to the forefront of mental health and substance use care. Without further ado, let's get talking. So uh, today we're going to be talking with Zay Okoronto, who was one of the facilitators uh, for the Peer Recovery Support Specialist Skill Development Series that we ran through the Center of Excellence. Um, Zay, would you mind saying hi? Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, So we're going to spend the next kind of hour just talking about the content of your presentation, but also get a little bit more into like the ethos of how you approach, you know, quote unquote, crisis. And I wanted to start kind of by asking you um, to talk a little bit about the title of the presentation, which was supporting people navigating crisis with the word crisis in quotes. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to kind of why it was important as we were planning this to put the word crisis in quotes. Yeah, I think um, traditionally when I've seen crisis, like the word itself has a lot, there's a lot of connotations that people will correlate with that word. The language is really important. You know, crisis, when I see crisis not in quotes, what I think is something that there's something wrong, there's something bad happening. Um, and when I was looking up examples of how to, how to illustrate what crisis can mean for other people, you know, some of the definitions were, you know, times of intense difficulty, trouble or danger, um, a catastrophe, a cataclysmic emergency situation. And crisis doesn't look that way for me and doesn't look that way for a lot of people that I support. Um, crisis is a really subjective word. And I think that how it's interpreted can really shape the response. So uh, I was on the verge of not even using that terminology, but I don't think I found a better word quite yet. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes when we stray kind of from that word, then people don't know what we're talking about. Um, like I know I, I sometimes will say like a uh, person experiencing distress or big emotions or big feelings, but even that isn't quite broad enough to get at like what you're talking about. Yeah. And I've heard even psychiatric emergency. Yeah. I've heard distress. I've heard disease and, and some of those things don't quite, um, don't quite say what crisis is supposed to mean, I suppose. Yeah. And so I think, you know, within the peer workforce and you and I have talked about this, there is some, kind of clinical co-optation going on. 
um, particularly as it pertains to crisis. So I was curious, you know, with your presentation as you were putting it together, um, how you were able to kind of push beyond that to talk about like really reframing what crisis could even mean. Yeah. So, and I feel the clinical co-optation has so much to do with the medical model goals and the standards of wellness that are imposed upon a person when they're seeking support or seeking services. Um, going beyond what that means had a lot to do with my own lived experience of what crisis has meant for me and people I love. Um, for me, crisis has been a culmination of grief in my life, of things being um, really unresolved. And I think when I was in crisis, I didn't want anyone to do anything. Crisis for me um, being related to grief was, you know, words don't make sense. Um, you know, silence is spelled with the same words or the same letters as listening. So I think I just needed people to listen to me, be present, bear witness. Um, so when I think about what crisis means for people like me and people I support, crisis can also be something that's really passively experienced or experienced on a consistent basis for a, a longer period of time because of the oppressions that I might experience or the way the world responds to my distress. It might not always be fertile ground for me to express that difficulty that I'm going through. And so that suppression happens. And I think the crisis is a lot more um, subversive, um, a little bit more passive. I don't even think passive is the right word. It's just not as visible, unfortunately, because there's not permission to be in that place of crisis. Um, and the ability to function can even be, you know, quote, function is limited because the level of acceptance in the outside world is not always there. Right. When the crisis, when the response, the traditional response to, you know, quote unquote crisis is incarceration or psychiatric incarceration or clinical assessments, then it can sometimes perpetuate the crisis because we're not able to talk about it um, or do anything about it without fear of, you know, losing our rights or freedom. Yeah, or fear of losing human dignity or losing acceptance, um, fear of what people will make, the meaning they will create out of the crisis, I think is a bigger issue for me um, and the work because it's not always, it's never about, you know, what is the pain and what do we do about that? It's like, what does the crisis mean and what's going to happen with the crisis that unfortunately becomes the center of the issue? Um, what's the crisis about? What's going to happen? Not to the person, but externally. Like, And that's something that I've always kind of resented. Um hearing people talk about crisis, the focus is never on the person who's experiencing crisis needing support. The direction instead, the attention is directed externally to, you know, the fallout, quote unquote, the collateral damage of the crisis, how it affects the public, um, the person is disturbing the peace, people are uncomfortable with how they're presenting or appearing, um, the money this will cost us to hospitalize the individual. But it's never about resolving or soothing or caring for the pain someone's experiencing or acknowledging the difficulty of what led them to that place. And I think that that's needs to be inversed. Yeah, definitely. And we hear those questions so frequently, like, you know, what kind of liability insurance do I need to carry or how might this impact the organization that I work for? And I know I hate, you like named my absolute biggest hatred of, of kind of working in this field is this idea that we should be saving systems money. Uh, <laughs> that is like, it's just so far beyond my goal because these systems exist to serve people. And so why would my goal be to not engage with a system that exists to serve me? The purpose should not be saving money. I think that's wild. Uh, but we see that focus so strongly on like how crisis services are developed instead of focusing really, like you said, on the person who's actually experiencing distress. Um, and I loved how you talked about in the presentation and the training materials, um, you kind of dove deep into some language exploration around like, you know, truth and who gets to decide what's true and what's real and how that impacts the way that we're perceived and responded to. 
And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we all have our biases. We all have our own internal narrations. We all have our worldviews and our perspectives. And, you know, in peer support, I think we have this value of multiple truths. But I think when a person is in crisis, quote unquote, um, it's centering the truth of what that person is experiencing and listening for the meaning that they're ascribing to that. And oftentimes for me, crisis has been a space to discover meaning, come into new knowledge about myself and clarify something that maybe I've been uncertain about or has been feeling like I'm on shaky ground. So something that I've played around with in um, working with alongside others is, you know, what is observable versus what is perceivable. And I think, you know, what is observable to me means like what is evident, what is experienced directly through my senses in the most simple terms. So like in a face-to-face interaction with someone, I can notice that they're holding their body tensely or they're speaking at a quickened pace um, or they're standing above me or their face is red. Um, and what I'm what I'm perceiving, separate from what I'm observing, is you know what I'm interpreted, the underlying beliefs, the stories, um, the way I'm analyzing, and the meaning that I'm personally assigning that's not being shared with me, but what I'm making of a situation. So I might look at that person and say, "Oh, this person is angry. Um, this person is stressed. This person is agitated." Is something I hear a lot. They're elevated. They're escalating, and that is a really terrible descriptor. Um, and I've been I've read notes about myself with that same language, and it felt very dehumanized. And and what I wanted to see was that I was in pain or someone acknowledging like I'm suffering because of a life challenge right now, like a difficulty with a transition or securing resources. Like they could have literally put like didn't have money to pay rent, but instead it was like, you know, said person like escalated and was like raising their voice and like, and, and there was this implication, this perception of violence put upon me. Um, and I think I've done that to others too. Like, I think, right. We've all done that. We, we all have a history of having biases and we've been conditioned to respond to people, um, almost seeking to perceive danger, seeking to perceive, um, emergency. And that's kind of how we've shaped crisis though, is to identify the threat and neutralize something. It's very militarized. It's very indicative of our history. Um, it's very, it's very ingrained in our society, just how we respond to things that feel uncomfortable in any way, shape or form, much less signal danger or, or the need to have a response. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've definitely done that as well. When I was still providing direct services, you know, chosen to interpret people's actions or behaviors in certain ways when they were maybe just feeling scared or upset or unhappy with what was going on. Um, and, and I think that is really reflective in a lot of the questions that we receive around crisis, right? We get those, how do I deescalate somebody? Or what if somebody's a physical threat? And I know for me, a lot of the conversation has been like, how frequently is that really happening to you that you feel that this, this needs to be the centerpiece of crisis training? Yeah, the physical threat piece for me um, is a wild question, especially in a respite context, because I hear, you know, the question is like, what if somebody picks up a knife? Or what if somebody brings a gun? Um, what if they hurt me? And and my response is like, can't that happen anywhere? And and why is it more likely to happen in a respite setting? Why Why would it be more likely to happen? I mean, I think it's more likely to happen just on the street in the mall, at a bus stop, like, on, like, it, it could happen literally in any setting. I mean, I actually think it could be more likely to happen in somewhere like a school um, right. or a place that has some more institutional structure. And I think that that extension of trust, that, that, um, that trust component is really important in a respite. So when I think about, you know, people searching bags or um, people deciding that a person is like precluding, like they're, they're anticipating violence or harm, 
it worries me when I think about folks entering the workforce when the presumption is that people are inherently dangerous. And it makes me question, you know, do you have the love and tolerance that's needed to do work like this? And how much of that is internalized or how much of that is externalized from systems pressing in on someone? But ultimately it's a it's a huge barrier to the work, this like um this like propensity to like anticipate and perceive violence is it's really damaging, especially to people of color if we're working in crisis settings. Yeah, and I think that that's something that we've seen consistently and historically within the peer workforce is that it's kind of peer support up until somebody says specific words, and they need to get the clinician involved because you're not equipped to do this. And this person is too much of a danger, too much of a risk for you. Um, and peer workers don't have the skill set to provide those services. And that's ingrained, you know, across the country in the codes of ethics. That was something that we saw in the comparative analysis was that the majority of them have a line in the code of ethics that says like, you will report to, you know, quote, unquote, appropriate staff when somebody is uh, an imminent threat to themselves or others. And I know in the respite that you work at, you guys have really created policies that are not in alignment with that idea that are really more aligned with, you know, actual peer values and forward thinking ways of providing behavioral healthcare services. And what does that look like? You know, how do you guys navigate those situations as kind of an example of crisis response? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the way the policy reads is, is pretty clear. It's just that you don't, um, contact a person without their consent, um, or contact law enforcement without their consent and that the person needs to be actively involved in, um, anything that is outside of the respite, any system engaging with us because we're not a system. Um, but in practice, in real time, the question looks more like, what do you think the police will do differently that can't happen here? Um, because I think that's a really thoughtful question because at the end of the day, what I hear a lot is, they're going to bring a gun um, or they're going to like say the words and, and bring the power that's needed to secure the situation, to change, to alter. They're going to bring force or they're going to bring the threat of force is what I'm hearing. And just working with peers that maybe don't have experience and navigating because a lot of this is unlearning too. Um, there's a balance of patience, but there's also a hard line around what can and can't be tolerated. And for people to acknowledge their limitations, like if you're getting to the point that you're concerned about calling crisis yourself, how much about you calling crisis is really about supporting that person and how much of it is you supporting yourself when you're experiencing a moment of distress and a loss of control. So it's, you know, calling people in for support when you feel like a situation is beyond your capacity. Um, it's being realistic about what you're expecting from the person. Have you asked them for what you're actually seeking to be resolved? Um, do you want them to stop screaming? Can they just move outside? Like, can we negotiate the space, negotiate boundaries and talk about limits? And can we just be okay standing on our ground and, and being in a space of vulnerability? Like, hey, what's happening right here? is really scary for me. It's impacting other people in the respite space. We're a community. So I love, I, I know, I think it was um, in Texas, I heard you say, you know, the value of community, you can do whatever you want, but the community has a right to respond. And when we think about power dynamics, leveling the playing field, my hope is that peers who are understanding that there's a power differential aren't going to use that power to wield authority over a person. Um, but it's really about acknowledging the needs of the group as a whole, speaking as a collective when we're talking directly to a person, not ambushing them, but as an individual, I, as part of this community, I'm feeling um, concerned about what's going on. And I don't feel this is reflective of our values. How do we work through this together? And I think that's also this in peer support work connected to like HR. Like when do we need to bring the big boys in? What is beyond us working out ourselves? Um, at what point, you know, does liability and risk 
at what point does regulation um, have to predicate like above like how we how we treat each other, how we speak to each other? And I think those things are also sloppy, um, dismissive ways of dodging connection and, vul- and vulnerability and not really engaging in a peer to peer connection because I can defer to power and I can. I can overthrow the situation with what my agenda is and I no longer have to listen or connect to what you're saying. And I think that that's also why we respond to crisis because of our own personal exhaustion and our inability to actually name that in a space with someone and maybe just say like, I'm really tired and I don't know what to do right now. Can you help me? Yeah. And something I hear regularly is that people, you know, from across the country who are providing peer support services feel like doing what you are talking about and leaning into that vulnerability saying, this is making me feel scared. There are other folks in this space who are being impacted. Can we just have a real dialogue about, you know, maybe going outside or moving to a different space or engaging in this conversation a little bit differently so that we don't have to do any of those things? Um, people often tell me that, that they wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because it might lessen how people look at them, right? They might be seen then as less professional or less of a recovery model because they're showing that, you know, they're less kind of quote unquote professional by experiencing distress in the workplace. So how do you think, or what, you know, what are your thoughts about how people can grow into that space of leaning into the vulnerability um, so that we don't have to engage in, you know, coercive practices or engage with law enforcement? I mean, I think it's remembering your role. I think, you know, when, when you position yourself in a peer interaction, you know, in a relational experience with someone, if you're coming from a perspective of handing down a service to somebody, like I'm, I'm handing over or downward a service and I'm providing something to a person, I'm not engaging in a mutual peer support dialogue. Um, I think you're going to have that, that expectation of yourself to maintain this veneer, this professionalism. I'm here to, to do something for someone and not necessarily also be in a, in a place of reciprocity, um, which is automatically a conflict with the peer um, perspective as it is. So I think asking people, you know, are you showing up as, yourself and as a peer supporter because i think those things are difficult with you know various identity like the interchange of the peer identity versus the peer role and the peer job but i think to step fully into the peer experience and coming from our own lived experiences um knowing that that is the credentialing that is the professionalism to just undo that is really important and i i I don't even i think i have a hard time relating to people that are worried about that vulnerability in that space because what else are you doing what 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 part of the job is relevant to peer support then? And and what I would reflect back is maybe like what about the interaction was peer support? What parts of it were? Like was there any peer support in that? And asking people like, you know, if if anyone else could do that job, if anyone, a clinician, a case manager, a skill developer, um, a therapist, whatever, if someone could replace you and and swap out you for your role and the interaction would have looked the same, it's probably not peer support. Because having right. lived experience and being a peer is certainly not the same thing. And that's a different conversation, but. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a different podcast series. <laughs> but I agree with you. Yeah, I love that reflection of like, what, you know, what is my role, right? Is it, well, what am I here to do? I really appreciate that question of like, am I here to fix? Am I here to teach? Am I here to save? Am I here to coach? No, if you're doing those things, we've moved outside of peer support then. Um, and so ultimately, right, how, how am I showing up in a place of vulnerability to engage in a dialogue like this? Um, and I know in your presentation, right, there was kind of a a push for an expanded understanding of what crisis could be, not just, you know, suicide or self-harm, but kind of larger scale systemic oppression, 
um, lack of access to means and, and different things that people need to survive. I would just love to hear more about your perspectives on those things and how, how they impact how crisis services are developed. Um, when we make the mistake of thinking that those things might not be crises when they actually could be. Yeah, well, I think crisis in itself as a definition has a really limited expectation of what what is considered, what constitutes a crisis and what can be determined as a crisis. So when I think about crisis and what I call a culture of assessment and liability, it's something that, you know, is meant to be solved. So there has to be a reason. It's presumed to be temporary. Um, it's supposed to have like legitimate cause or origins that make sense. And the validity, the validity of the crisis is always for some reason determined by the person on the receiving end of, of the person's suffering. So we have this kind of triaged, medicalized way of, of categorizing and um, classifying like separate tiers of like urgency. And I think that also comes from scarcity and from just trying to reduce burnout among workforces. But that's, I, I don't think that's a valid excuse. And I think that we also prioritize risk over the connection to the individual. So when we're assessing and responding to a person's crisis, we're not asking them, how did you get here? What about your life has resulted in, you know, the inability to navigate these these systems effectively? And we're not coping with the reality that systems were not designed for or by people who need them the most. Um, so I think, you know, a person, when I was in crisis, some questions I was asked, they felt irrelevant at the time, but they were the most relevant questions I could have been asked. They were like, do you have a safe place to live? Do you feel safe in your relationship? Do you have people you can count on for support around you? Do you have access to food? Um, are you currently employed? And I've, at first I thought she was just taking demographic questions, but she was actually trying to get a picture of my life. It wasn't the most skillful way. It, this was a clinician just kind of rattling off like maybe some assessment questionnaires, but I thought they were really important. Um, and it got me thinking a time that I received peer support in crisis when I was working in a, in a space that I wasn't safe to call the local crisis line for a lot of different reasons. What she said to me really stuck with me. She said, of course, you feel crazy, quote, right now. It makes perfect sense to feel crazy when a situation is, in fact, crazy. Right. And I just wanted to feel like my feelings made sense. And then I was able to come up with all these different reasons, you know, like, oh, I've recently liberated myself from abusive relationships. I'm struggling to pay my rent, you know, paycheck to paycheck. I'm, you know, taking a, a psychiatric medication medication that I'm tapering off of, and it's causing some severe neurological side effects. My best friend is struggling with chronic illness. You know, my parents are going through a separation. There were, when I had the space to go into that empathy with a person and I was given back, um, the legitimization of my own feelings, just that affirmation, it painted a more, of, of, it painted the focus away from myself and maybe of all these things that were interacting with me that were impeding my ability to live a life that had joy and meaning on my own terms. And so I think asking the questions, I hate that the idea of, you know, it's we're limiting it to social determinants of health, but what does a person need to feel like they can live a life of meaning and what would bring them joy. And sometimes that is material shit. Sometimes that is like, I need enough money to pay to live. I need health insurance. I need to be able to see, I need to be able to have my teeth maintained. Like I want to be able to have a dog and then have an animal that maintains my well being. And I want access to the resources so I can pursue friendships, pursue relationships because life is expensive. Things cost money. We live in a capitalistic society. And I think that people don't consider that, you know, especially even in peer support, 
the low wages were paid, they don't go this, they don't go as far in communities of color or in queer trans people of color, you know, $20 an hour for you might be more like 15 for me because I have more expenses because I, there's a tax on living for being who I am and where I live. So those are just some of my thoughts, but it's, it's a grander issue of what are people lacking? And if some of these larger systemic things were resolved, really what would crises be made of and how would they come about? And I'm, I'm really curious about what that would look like. Cause I, I think we would move more into crises around relationship conflict, relational difficulty um, and how harm has showed up in people and connections. And that's what a lot of crisis is about too, is just relationship challenges. That's one of the higher data points I've noticed, even from the suicide prevention lifeline. And I'm shocked that this isn't a call for a deepening of services. And that's like, that's another conversation too, like the family systems discussion. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I agree with everything that you're saying, right? There's a lot of external factors that are in play and a lot of history that usually led up to the moment that we're actually engaging with somebody who is in deep distress. And ultimately, you know, for me, what I keep coming back to is, is forcing this person into the hospital or making them engage with law enforcement or doing a safety assessment actually going to solve any of the issues that led to this moment? No. Probably not, right? No. <laughs> so so what is the purpose of these things? What is the purpose in responding to crisis this way when it's actually not contributing to a solution? Um, and I don't know, you know, of course, the point of peer support isn't necessarily to always have a solution. But if we're actively moving in ways that move us away from the solution, right, then I think we've moved in the complete wrong direction. So well, I love- it's intentional, though, too. So, so I think yeah. back to is working at a place called YWCA, there was a, an, a report called Race to Equity that was a it's kind of a summarization of the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, we're a petri dish for inequities at a national level. We have the highest infant mortality rate. We have the highest incarceration rate. You know, we funnel children through schools and assign them, you know, we ascribe diagnostic labels to them and we funnel them through an IEP system and they're disadvantaged from day one from the school system until we have our school to prison pipeline. We have a criminalization of people without housing here. And I think that that's very intentional to not ask the questions of how we got here because the crises, if we could take, if we could correlate the data from people who are accessing crisis services and having those, you know, what I consider to be failed outcomes, failed outcomes by the system, not the person, it would point directly to a lack of public funding and public health access. Um, and I think that that's I when I was doing research on some of the projects I'm working on, there's limited funding in North America for these exact correlations. The UK um, and Europe does have correlations around police response and exposure to violence and people of color, um, especially in non-consensual interventions. There's not a whole lot of it, but there are reports, there's toolkits, there's publications. And I'm pretty sure I read somewhere um, on a European publication that they suspect American funding has not has not reached this issue because of the inability to make changes at the national level and to make changes at the funding structural level. So I think we also have to acknowledge that there's that, you know, in DEI work, we call that malignant indifference, the intentional turning of a blind eye towards something because we know or we think the problem is too large to be solved. And there's a lot of excuses that we make as a society too, but there's a reason that people are having to speak around the issue, but the money is not being put there to really paint the picture of what is wrong and what a solution could be. But we all know that problem yeah i think exactly and uh, right to address things in the way that you're talking about would require a level of individual organizational and systemic reflection that we're just not willing to engage in because we have to look at you know the historical 
precedents that led us to where we are today, where our funding is going, how it's being used, and how we've made meaning of human distress and how we choose to respond with violence rather than compassion across systems. Uh, and I don't think, like you said, we're we're there we <laughs> to be willing to do those things. A lot of people from jail and prison, and we probably <laughs> probably have to pay a lot of um, reparations and legal fees and legal representation and loss of human rights people have gone through. I mean, when I think about the opioid settlement fund, could you imagine the crisis settlement fund for all the number of lives that have been destroyed by that system alone? Yeah, I think that it's not even fathomable to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. So we've talked a lot about kind of what maybe isn't working and where a lot of harms are, are are coming from. I would love to hear your thoughts on how, like if you envisioned kind of a dream crisis response, an alternative to what exists right now, what would that look like? And what do you think the role of peer specialists could be in that response to crisis? Um, so I think I have the, the luck and chance and just... I don't want to call it luck and chance. It's It's been blood, sweat, and tears, but of creating the thing I wanted to see. And just strictly speaking from my lived experience, I did create the thing that I needed because when I was in crisis, it wasn't there. So that's kind of been my intention in most of the work I've done. So when I think about, you know, Solstice House, the warm line and the respite itself, when someone calls the respite and they're like, you know, I want to go to the hospital or, you know, can you help me talk to the police? It's slowing urgency and inviting curiosity and and offering care first, because I think that's part of the problem is the barrier to entry for crisis services or care services is it has to be an emergency enough to the other person because I someone else could be needing this right now. I don't want to waste their time. I'm not at the level where I'm like going to die. And that's indicative of the medical system too. You have to be in this red zone of unless you're on the brink of death, don't come to the ER. So unless you're on the brink of, you know, suicide or self-harm, don't call the crisis line. And I think that we need to reverse that expectation for the public too. So when we advertise Solstice House Warm Line, it's, you know, you can call in times of crisis or life interruption, but please call and share moments of joy too. Share moments of boredom, share moments of stress, just be in connection and collaboration with the community, know who people are um, developing those relationships. So if that time comes, we can talk through what that might look like. And so that slowing down looks like, you know, what do you think will happen at the hospital? And it also means making it clear to the person in the beginning, um, it's not my role or my intention or my personal perspective even to call the authorities on you. I don't know what this means and I'm going to I'm gonna listen to you. I'm here to, to offer presence, not action is something that I've coined for our respite. So when I think about what offering presence means, it's asking someone like, what are you needing right now? How much of that is achievable personally for me? What is realistic? What makes sense? And then being being honest too about where we're at coming from, like our limitations. I can't reach through the phone and hog tie you and like secure your safety, nor would I want to. That's just simply not my job. That sounds more like a like an emergency responder um, was going to like come by helicopter and like parachute through your room. And we don't even have that. It's it's still not as it's still not that that well done. So when I think about like a dream crisis vision, it's space to make calls without call time limits. It's space to call as frequently as I need to and negotiate boundaries on an individual level and have challenging conversations and be able to express in a full spectrum all the experiences of my emotion without concern of fear, projection, bias, judgment, meaning being made on my behalf and a response taken that's in the that's opposing to what I'm actually asking for. That's not what I'm hoping or needing from the experience. 
And in a respite setting, it's coming into a relaxed, unrestricted, free space, which can be really scary for people, I think, because they expect structure. Um, some people will come to respite and they want a schedule. They want um, someone to tell them what to do, take away my phone, look through my things, the presumption of incompetence. And other people have been so greatly harmed by those things that that's what they fear the most, especially if we've been institutionalized or systematized. So it come, when, you know, when someone comes to Solstice House, we're not searching their bag. We're not presuming that they have anything dangerous. We're treating them like a human being coming into even my own home, my own personal space. I'm not throwing your things in the laundry to make sure that you're not a dirty vagrant and you're not carrying bed bugs in here. I'm not going to put you through a treatment setting. I'm going to give the person the same level of dignity and respect I would give any other human being coming through my door that I care about and I trust and I'm extending something to them. So if I said, oh, you can come stay at my house tonight, I'm not going to make you go through a really rapid fire questionnaire and tell me exactly who you are. How much do I really have to know about a person to allow them the simplicity of sleeping in a bed for a couple of nights mm-hmm. and going to the fridge and going to the bathroom? Um, how much, and, and, and actually they don't owe me anything. I should be making myself safe to that person. So we try to share about who we are. Um, what happens at the house? We ask people if they have questions and the only question that we really ask is, are, are you wanting to be in community with other people right now? Do you understand other people have their own stuff going on and this time needs to be about you? Um, so yeah, when I, when I think about truly unrestricted non-carceral settings, I think what are the elements of, yeah, what the system does, um, which is that seclusion, restraint, assessment, categorization, creation of meaning, and how can we totally invert that and do exactly the opposite? So that's kind of, a good checkpoint for us at Solstice House is, and also rules should make sense. So if we have a rule that doesn't make any sense, um, like there, we used to, there used to be an old policy before I came that we flip beds if someone's gone for 24 hours. Um, if no one's calling for respite and we just haven't heard from that person, why would we do that? Why won't we just slow down? Why don't we reach out to the person, call them and express some concern? Like, Hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. Um, what is with the the urgency to do things, um, to make things happen and then to produce results? Why can't we just wait and see what happens? Yeah, I love that. And I hear, I'm so glad you said the last piece, the rules, rules have to make sense. Cause I was thinking about that cause I've heard you talk about it before, but I was thinking about it as you were speaking and I was like, yeah, I, I want to make sure to mention that. So I'm glad that you brought it up, but I hear within that too, a lot of values, right? Like the value of humility of being willing to say, I don't know what this means for you. And I'm willing to sit in that discomfort of not knowing and not knowing how to respond immediately and not knowing what you need and not knowing how to make meaning of this. That is a reflection of us as pure recovery support specialists providing services. Do I have the skills to be able to sit in a lack of knowledge and feel okay engaging with this person? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love hearing you talk about mutuality too and presumed competence, right? All things that go out the window when it comes to crisis response, this idea that I know better than this person what they need, or I know what the appropriate boundaries are, when really what we can be doing, like you said, is creating the space for those boundaries to be negotiated mutually together um, by the person who's providing services and the person who's receiving services, um, that we trust that the person who's come to us for support is still a full human being who is competent enough to make decisions and engage with us. Um and I, I just also want to name how much I appreciate like this idea of, of slowing down and sharing joy. Um, you know, your point is spot on that like if you're not on the verge of death, there's no re- you know you really can't access services because 
we hear so frequently like, oh, you could be taking this bed from somebody else or somebody else really needs this bed right now. You can only stay in the hospital for like three days anyways and then get out of here. Um, and how much is that really helping? So being able to share joy and slow down, um, I, I would love to see more of that too. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, kind of, we heard this vision of what could be and what is, you know, I want to also really name that we're not talking about a hypothetical, we're talking about a real respite that exists here in Madison, Wisconsin. So these things are possible and can exist. And I'm interested to hear your take on kind of the state of the peer workforce and how they're engaging with crisis response, you know, where, not necessarily grading us, but like, where do you think we are in implementing those things? answer for those who know the language i'll say the bar is in hell um (laughs) i i think that there's a lot of great intentions and i think there's a lot of opportunity um i think that we have every intention of moving through this it's a it's a it's and it's tough for me because you know i'm willing to even say i don't know enough to say what I'm so what I'll just go into pure mode. What I'm noticing is there's an intention to provide safety um, and protection for people who have experienced systemic harm, and there's an intention to do things differently. What is lacking is the implementation and the orientation toward a values setting that's consistently aligned with uh, carrying out that service. I will also say there's a tremendous lack of the personal work that needs to be done within the workforce to make fertile ground for that to happen. Because I also want to just say to, um, you know, this, this value of humility, we teach the things we need to learn is what I think. And crisis has been a struggle for me on a personal level. How I've responded in the past has been harmful to others. I have learned how to approach crisis through my own series of failures and missteps in community and my commitment to repair um, and and restoring and being in a place of wanting to be in right relationship with myself and others and, and how I want to navigate my relationships. So I also think a lot of this for me on a personal level has been challenging myself to navigate uncertainty as like, that's a core aspect of, you know, some people call it trauma, quote unquote. I just call it the distress that I experience of being a human being, the conditions that I, that I work within, um, how I, how I experience life, not knowing is hard for me. I want to decide what's going to happen. I want to predict the outcome. I want to create what I, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's safety and that certainty um, of knowing what this means for me. And so I think on a personal level, there needs to be a great amount of self-reflection. What is my comfort in not knowing? And can I intentionally not know? I think in Texas too, someone else shared that acronym PINK practice intentionally not knowing and approaching things from a place of wonder, curiosity, adventure, and maybe even positivity and some joy. Um, Looking for the beauty in in what is and honoring people as they are, Um, not trying to shape them into something I want them to be or create this like resiliency picture to like, um, oh, you're so strong for withstanding the perpetual harm of systems. Um, I think that there needs to be a renewed understanding within the peer workforce of what crisis has been for others, an acknowledgement of the harm we've experienced, and a commitment to being in right relationship with ourselves and others from a real intrinsic, from an introspective place of being able to acknowledge the harms that I've perpetuated systemically. Where have I misstepped, misaligned myself? Where have I exposed people to danger? Where have I presumed incompetence among my friends and others? Because I think when we look at, you know, some of that like me search, that self work, 
how have I showed up in ways, even on a personal level, that are reflective of systems? Um, and what can I do to undo that on a personal level in my in my relationships? How will that translate into my life experiences and my work relationships? Because it's really hard to show up with the job skills we need to when on a personal level, cultural level, community level, political level, we are so far behind. And I think that that is also how we respond to harm in community, how we respond to fragmentation with this emergent response of like, I need to cancel this person, I need to eradicate them, excommunicate them, I need to punish this person. How am I reflecting systems of punitive action and punishment instead of systems of care and support? And how am I, how am I, you know, what is nurturing about what I'm, what I'm showing up as? And and what is based in a desire to protect myself that might result in the suppression of another person. So we have a long way to go. I think what you said in that too, there's, there's a big piece of that, this idea that learning is inherently a punishment, that I'm wrong for not knowing. So circling back to this attitude of practicing intentionally not knowing, I didn't know this stuff a couple of years ago either. Um, I came into knowing because I wanted to know. I had to know. I challenged myself to do things differently on a personal level. It was a personal desire for me to change even. And it was about how I treated myself, you know, how I punished myself, how I imposed self-judgment, self-flagellation on myself when I was suffering. Um, a lot of my suffering was acted inwardly toward myself, um, othering myself and, and thinking that I wasn't worthy of being around people when I was in a crisis space. So when that self-work is reflected outwardly, I think as a workforce, that's something that I also, you know, as a, as a, hopefully a, a joyful call to action, um, why don't we sit in the uncertainty of all the things we don't know? And are we listening to communities who are impacted by crisis settings? And are we more concerned with hurting a person's feelings by telling them, actually, no, this work has an impact. And why aren't we curious and excited about there are people that could teach me or lead me or shape my understandings into new territory. And we're all learning together because they're learning too, because I'm learning how to work in crisis services and crisis peer support. The people that I work at the, with at the respite, they teach me how to do my job. And I learn from what didn't go well. And I appreciate, you know, this idea of moving toward, you know, what didn't go well, what could have done been done differently and what is the call on a, to myself what is my intention of how I can have this change show up in a really real way that looks like implementation? So I think that also the peer workforce, you know, just that element of humility and excitement around learning, we're forging into new territory. You know, people are looking to us when we're looking at radical systemic transformation and change. So why am I replicating old systems? These things already exist. It's actually my job to dream new visions. And that's exciting. And maybe because I don't know, my willingness is still enough. The existing gifts and skills and talents and abilities I bring to the table, that is where the wisdom is. So when I get it wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. I can count on the community around me to support the things I am bringing to the table and people can hold me as I learn. Um, and that's something that I'm reading um, about too, connected to some of Adrian Marie Brown's work. Can we hold each other as we navigate crumbling systems that were not built and designed to support us? Can we be abolitionists with each other? So if I don't want to replicate punitive and, and punishment systems in crisis work, why am I replicating that in a learning space? And why am I self-punishing or expecting punishment from a person and reading punishment when it might not be there? Um, this idea of a compassionate correction is something I really like to offer because when I'm telling someone, you know, what I'd like to see instead of this work in peer crisis too, 
I'm sharing that with the workforce on the presumption that I presume competence in people even listening to this podcast, that we can have challenging conversations, we can share challenging information because I trust you can hear it and I know we can rise to the call. Um, so, and I think people also, that's part of restoring our own dignity as peers is why are we, you know, infantilizing one another and thinking that, you know, a, a needing, a needing to shift values orientation, even because of equity is a personal assessment of your value, your work. Mm-hmm. My hope, just like every other, I hope like teacher, facilitator, supporter, um, person who's doing presentations. I hope that in some day in 10 years, my work will be you know, obliterated by somebody who knows way more than me, um, then I've done my job. I, I hope that this will be, you know, you know, it, it will be irrelevant because they will have taken what I've offered and shaped it into something new that's relevant to the generations that come after me. So I think that humility to step aside and say, you know, maybe the people who are coming after me in peer support need different things. Um, maybe, you know, the Gen Zers, the queer trans people of color, the people who are centered by the impacted systems, maybe they have different needs and I ought to listen and hold that history, hold that resolve, but also create space for people to move into the new things that they need in community, how they want to live into their lives. And and I also see I also see the flip side of that too, where and, and it, this is not an excuse too, so I, I will paint this through a lens of accountability that being in a survival, being in survival mode, which is where you know most peer supporters are, especially with underfunded programs and lack of access to you know competent training and, and competent supervision, appropriate supervision, which is peer supervision, not clinical supervision, not hybridized peer and clinical supervision. Someone, I'm not saying like me, but someone akin to me or other people I know locally too, who are just peer supporters. No, I don't have a degree. I don't need one. My lived experience is the credentialing, is legitimization something I like to share with people who are coming to me for leadership support or even personal development peer support is no one is going to give you permission to do anything. And that radical lens of navigating the world, I think is felt at a deeper level for people of color and for queer trans people, non-binary people like myself too. Um, This idea that if I don't create space for myself to exist, it will not be there. And I think that's something that we need to acknowledge. We need to shape is like, how much do I want my own liberation? How, how far am I willing to push myself to pursue that? Um, I, and I think we forget the power of our own workforce. They can't do this without us, literally. They are coming to us asking us for the solutions. And why are we giving them the same repackaged shit? We are not helping them. We're hindering them. We don't push ourselves beyond even our own limitations. And I think that, um, you know, the seduction of the system is something that I've talked about is, is very powerful. This idea that now that I'm in peer support work, I will never experience a crisis. I will never be re-victimized or re-traumatized by a system that harmed me or people I love. And that is, it's not real. It's not reality. The systems will always exist. So I think if people need to center it in their own survival too, make, make this about making systems safer for yourself. Um, we become so removed from our experiences as peer supporters sometimes, you know, it's this, and I think in POC spaces, we know what this means. Don't forget where you came from. Do not forget where you came from. Um, because, you know, I'm one accident away from a $50,000 hospital bill and losing my autonomy, losing my apartment and ending up in psychiatric crisis. Like, like, and that's not meant to be scary or bleak. It's just, it's real. Um, and so I think with crisis systems, you know, we think about, it has to be that balance of, 
what could go really, really well. Yeah, what are the possibilities? But also, what is the harm that happens if we don't change? What is going to continue to perpetuate? What will persist? Because whatever we're not changing, we're choosing. We're choosing for other people that don't have the opportunities. So when I think about the backs that you know I'm standing on, the people that came before me, the trees I'm sitting under that were planted for years before me, am I doing right by elders? Am I doing right by future generations and, and other ch- and children that will access these services? Um, am I doing right by peer supporters coming into the workforce that might need things different than me? It's not just about what I need or what I think is safe, even on my own personal level. Um, but when we think about centering the most impacted, I have to know that this experience will always be different for them. So I think we need to, again, like invert who we're being led by. Are we being led by people that have experienced the most visceral and challenging and harmful experiences by systems? Because we think, oh, this is as worse as it's gotten. It's it's worse for me. We haven't even touched the the brink of what that looks like in peer support. And it's because those we don't have access to those voices because maybe they're still experiencing seclusion and restraint. Maybe they're unable to enter the workforce because of a lack of references or a lack of job history, a lack of acceptance for, you know, the experiences that they have, like mental health wise, whatever, like how they experience life. Maybe they're not going to be regarded as equally as quote professional. So I think we have to think about too the privilege that it means to be in the peer support workforce. Um, and what is my responsibility to people who will never even come into knowledge of what peer support work is, who are still going to be, and maybe even more at a higher, at a higher likelihood of accessing those harmful systems and being in crisis. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.